Welcome to the Sentac Podcast. The Society for Ear, Nose, and Throat Advancement in Children is a collective group of like-minded healthcare professionals involved in the care of children with otolaryngology, hearing, speech, and swallowing disorders. We are uniquely composed of physicians and allied healthcare professionals, including otolaryngologists, pediatricians, basic scientists, audiologists, speech therapists, occupational therapists, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants. My name is Javen Nation. I am the Communications Director for Sentac. This first season of our podcast, we will focus on having conversations with different teams and team members that provide specialized care for children. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Today we have a special podcast focused on quality improvement and how quality improvement is crucial to advancing the care we provide for children. A large focus of CENTAC is providing better care for children by working in multidisciplinary teams. The reality is putting together and providing care as a team comes with friction, shortcomings, and general difficulties with, with managing multiple moving parts in an effective way. Today, we're gonna to talk about how quality improvement can be used as an important tool to identify and improve these issues. Today, I have three special guests. Dr. Jennifer Levin, Dr. Josh Fedwell, and Dr. Mike McCormick. Uh, Dr. Levin, can you please go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jennifer Levin. I'm one of the uh, pediatric otolaryngologists at Lurie Children's Hospital, and I also work in the Center for Quality and Safety at Lurie. All right, Dr. Bedwell. Uh, yeah, I'm Josh Bedwell. I'm an, uh, attending at Texas Children's Hospital at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And I serve as our uh, surgical director for quality and safety for our division, as well as our NISQIP uh, surgeon champion for the hospital. All right, Dr. McCormick. Yeah, I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist at the uh, Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Um, I'm the uh, quality improvement coordinator for our otolaryngology department um, here at MCW, and I also serve as the Director of Surgical Quality for Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, and um, I'm also the Surgeon Champion for NISPIP here. All right, from here on out, I'm gonna call you guys by your first name. Hope you're okay with that. Uh, unless anyone wants me to uh, be more formal, let me know. Uh, Mike was my uh, Chief Resident, just to uh, be clear, and he might uh, hound <laughs> on me, but let's move forward. Uh, so I'm gonna give you guys each a chance to, to take this first question, because uh, it's a very large topic. Um, uh, let's start with you, Jennifer. Um, tell us, what is QI? So, I mean, obviously, quality improvement is making healthcare better. And the way I like to focus on QI is looking at looking at it within the six uh, domains of healthcare quality. So, you know, realizing that it encompasses all, but quality is safe care, effective care, patient-centered care, timeliness, um, efficiency, and uh, care that is equitable. And so I think if I, usually when I frame it in that regard, uh, it helps me center on what I need to be doing. Yeah, you want to take it, Josh? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, an excellent definition. Uh, I don't have too much to add to that, but I would just say that when I think of QI, I, I like to think that it's a spectrum and it can go anything, anywhere from you know, participating in a great uh, morbidity and mortality conference, um, all the way from there to leading a formal, you know, hospital or multi-hospital-wide project. So there's a, there's a lot that's uh, covered by the word QI or the term QI. And Mike? 
Yeah, uh, not much to add to those um, comments. You know, I mean, it, it, to think of it just very simply, it's it's just all of our collective efforts to provide care that's, you know, effective, evidence-based, efficient, and, you know, as Jen said, equitable as well. I mean, that's kind of it in a nutshell, right? Um, you know, those of us in QI roles, we're always trying to, to move the ball forward. Um, some, sometimes it's proven it uphill, but um, we're always kind of dedicated to that process and to moving it forward. So it's, it's really interesting how all of you guys have incorporated QI uh, into your practices and your, your career now that you're attendings. Um, looking back, when I think about QI, you know, I had opportunities as a trainee, um, but I always kind of think of it kind of like clinic as a trainee, right? It's like, you're kind of, it's something you have to do. You're not super excited when you're there, but then as you kind of move on in life, you realize how critically important it is. Uh, so, so, so tell me, how did you guys get involved? In, in QI um, as trainees? I'll go first uh, because I didn't get involved as a trainee. Um, I didn't get involved really until, uh, I guess it was my first year or two of uh, being attending. And uh, I think we all share a common mentor um, from Children's National in DC, and that's Rahul Shah. And I got involved with something called the Global Tracheostomy Collaborative uh, that Dr. Lieben and Dr. McCormick are involved in. Uh, and when that launched, um, that was my first kind of taste of, of QI. Uh, so, so after you actually started as an attending. Right. Uh, very interesting. Um, how about you, Jennifer? So I became, as, uh, as Dr. Bedwell alluded to, I became involved with QI uh, working under Dr. Shaw at Children's National. Um, and then I, since I had an interest in that, I pursued a master's degree in quality and safety uh, my first year out as an attending. Um, and so those, that gave me the tools to hit the ground running in my first year out as an attending um, and picking up quality improvement projects that way. How'd you decide that was something you wanted to do? I think, you know, I always like fixing things. <laughs> and so, you know, you can complain about things and you can really rise about why things aren't working the way that they should, or you can actually do something about it. And then I wanted to do the latter. And it, it was a one-year program? It was a two-year program. Two-year program. Okay. And you did that as an attending while, while you were working? Yeah. My first two years as an attending. And I think one of the things when you are a brand new attending, you're not going to have more time than that because you're building your practice and it does take some time to ramp up. Um, and so for those of you who are coming out of training, uh, getting an advanced degree at that time is really the right, is the best time. Yeah. And how about you, Mike? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, as they mentioned, I also had a mentor in Children's National and Rahul and, um, you know, he got me involved in the Academy's uh, PSQI committee when I was a fellow and I, I ended up serving six years on that committee and um, made some connections and, and uh, learned a lot of things and, and brought some ideas home to my department and my institution. Um, I mean, but in order to for the trainees about how to get involved, it's, it's actually quite easy. I mean, it's kind of all around you when you're a trainee, as, as you kind of alluded to, you don't really even realize it when you're on the front lines of medicine. Um, you see opportunities on your daily rounds on the floors, during your cases in the operating rooms, when you're on call in the emergency department, um, all the little things that you encounter that make you say either like, oh, if that isn't changed, someone is going to get hurt or even just like, oh, gee, like, I think there's probably a better way we can do this. Let me look into that. Um, so I think as a trainee, those are kind of the, 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 the styles that I would kind of emphasize for, for people that are interested in getting into this. And as an attending, did you have the opportunity for additional training like, like Jennifer 
or was yeah. it learn on the job type thing? Yeah, one of my as as she mentioned, you know, when you're when you're building a practice, you have a little bit more free time than when you're at this stage in our practice. Um, so I was able to um, and encouraged to participate in a um, a program here at MCW for faculty scholars, and and it was dedicated to PSQI themes and education, and it was. Um, supposed to kind of give us the tools to not only, um, you know, uh, engage in QI at our hospital and in our practice, but also to train the students and residents in that as well. Oh, very cool. And how long was that program? A year. A year. Yeah. Did you get any, like uh, an official certification or? No, it's a little certificate at the end. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, it's, it's nothing that uh, you don't get any letters after your name or anything. It's, it's mostly just to kind of get to the knowledge and experience and confidence to kind of go out and, and teach people about it. Excellent. Excellent. And how about you, Josh? Um, yeah, I, I also got a master's degree. Um, I started it uh, five years into my practice, which uh, maybe was a little bit too late um, as far as time uh, commitment. Uh, but I, it was very useful to kind of learn the basics um, and learn some of the statistical tools and that sort of thing um, that you can that you can employ in QI, although not necessary. Um, I have not done this, but our institution also offers something similar to what Mike was talking about, kind of a, a mini course or a course, uh, uh, an advanced QI uh, that many people will go through. So I think a lot of um, uh, universities and medical schools have those types of courses. Uh, and so I think if you're a trainee somewhere, um, just make sure you, you look, uh, look into that. I'm sure that most places will have something. So how did it work for you? Was it, was it something where you were kind of doing it on the job and then you realized you want to go back and get more formal training? Yeah, I mean, pretty much. I, you know, I was kind of late to uh, recognize my interests and it just it wasn't something that was focused on so much um, when I was in training. Uh, and I realized that it was something I, you know, I was interested in spending my time doing, but that I didn't really understand super well. Uh, and so that's kind of what led me to, to get additional training. Oh, wow. Was it a one or two year program? It was a two-year program. Wow. And how'd you, how'd you manage to uh, find the extra time? Um, you, you, late nights. Uh, <laughs> late nights <laughs> and weekends. Yeah. Right. A, very, uh, a very understanding spouse. That's awesome. I, will, I, I would add that, the, you know, there's a lot of institutions offer a lot of these courses that, you know, I described and Josh described. Um, but there's also a lot of opportunities online for training courses mm -hmm. and modules that are, um, you know, if people want to get some exposure or knowledge about some of these concepts and maybe some, some build some skill sets to bring back to the institution. And this isn't just for, you know, physicians and trainees, but it applies to all advanced practice providers and uh, speech pathologists and audiologists that are just looking to get some their toes into the pool of quality of improvement. Yeah. So, well, so you're coming out. Oh, I'm sorry. I was say, especially with the, um, you know, Zoom nation we have now. I mean, I think that also, even back when I did my master's training, most uh, there was probably about half of my class came from other institutions outside of the Chicago area, um, and it was a combination of on-site and then um, remote work. So, so tell me how it fits into your life now as an attending. Um, I, I guess kind of the nuts and bolts of, of how um, having your master's in, in this particular area um, works day to day. Why don't you start, Jennifer? So uh, where it started was within my division. And so I would pick up quality improvement projects in the division. Um, I would, so I started doing uh, the development of clinical care guidelines in button battery ingestion, in adenotonsillectomy, in LTRs. 
Um, and then I also uh, created a model of care where we observed patients who were intermediate risk after tonsillectomy in the PACU for a little bit. Um, and where that has grown is more hospital-wide. And so now I'm in charge of rolling out the HRO um, or so high reliability organization principles in the ambulatory setting. Um, and I'm also uh, the physician lead on our US News and World Report submission. Yeah, why don't you tell me the same, Josh? Tell me how it, uh, it fits into your career now. Yeah, so I think kind of like any anything else, like if you if you publish a couple articles on one thing, um, it starts to come to you, right? Um, or you give a talk to the pediatricians, all of a sudden um, you start to see more of whatever you just talked about, so be careful. Um, once you start of sort of like introduce yourself or become known as someone who has that interest and that skill set, things start to show up, things start to come to you. Um, and so I was involved with it before I even got kind of an administrative role. Um, and then that followed from the fact that I was, uh, I showed interest and was doing projects. Um, and so from a, on a day-to-day, um, from a day-to-day perspective, it really is folks coming to you to ask questions, ask for guidance, um, propose uh, topics for further study or for projects. Um, I run our divisional QI uh, and then obviously with um, inter interfacing with the rest of the Department of Surgery, um, meeting monthly as a, as a department for a surgical quality committee meeting. Um, and then we meet, we meet weekly for NISQIP to go over um, the cases that were entered in any, any, um, any issues with that. Uh, so it really is a daily a daily factor in what I do, um, just like clinic uh, or the OR. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how about you, Mike? Um, similar, kind of snowballs. Um, you know, as I came in, you know, as, as someone that had interest in this during my first year here, myself and another junior faculty at that time were kind of tasked with revamping our QI and M&M process. And, um, and I still kind of hold that, that role for our uh, department. Um, and as I got involved with that, then I kind of, um, you know, got exposed to other people around the hospital that had similar interests, as, as uh, Josh said. And then I kind of became involved with the Global Tracheostomy Collaborative, Collaborative, which was uh, alluded to earlier. And as I learned more about the initiatives there and, and, and actually kind of recognized that a lot of what we do at our hospital in terms of pediatric trach care was already kind of at or above what I was hearing at some of these other institutions, I realized that we could, this was an opportunity for our hospital. So um, so I got our hospital to join the GTC, and um, we've been pretty happy with that um, uh, 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 joint endeavor there and the effects that we've kind of seen on that in terms of having a shared database that we can kind of benchmark our trick data against. Um, and then, um, you know, as I, as I got involved with NISCIP on the Odo side, I kind of then kind of had an interface with the, the overall kind of surgeon-in-chief and our, our director of surgical quality, who then kind of left our institution. And in the search for a new one, I kind of um, was selected to do, to do that job as director of surgical quality for the hospital. And so now that's um, officially 0.15 of my job, but it's, it's probably a little bit more. It's definitely more like 80% of my email inbox. Um, and so uh, that, that's, big, that, that's a big part of my job at this point um, in terms of just uh, coordinating a lot of the, the surgical quality efforts that are multidisciplinary in nature, organizing our meetings that, that um, revolve around that and all the projects that spin off of those meetings, such as um, looking at surgical site infections or improving coordinated surgical care, things like that. So um, it just kind of grows and grows and grows as time goes by. Yeah, very cool. So, so it sounds like all of you guys are in the part of your career where it's kind of compounding on itself. 
Well, let's let's take a step back. Um, put yourself in the uh, the role of like maybe a trainee uh, or somebody who's just getting started in this, and and they don't really understand what type of problems work well for a QI project. Um, talk to us. How do we develop the sense um, or the eye for uh, opportunities around our hospital um, or in our clinics um, for for projects that that would work well uh, in this type of situation? Um, why don't we start? We'll go backwards. We'll start with you, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in my current role, it's easy, um, as you mentioned. But you know, if you go to like a smaller kind of divisional or practice level scale. Um, you know, opportunities can can be identified at staff meetings or at your M&M conferences. You, you know, you may discuss a particular case and, and it might spur a conversation that goes something like, huh, like maybe maybe we should maybe we should look at our data on that topic. And, and then you dig deeper into it and you have those conversations with all the involved stakeholders from your team and from other teams at the hospital. And you kind of start to build a protocol related to that topic. And then you can kind of follow up on that and you can kind of keep looking into it um, to see if your changes are having the desired effect. So that's probably the simplest way as a, as a provider and as a staff faculty member to kind of identify something in your practice. Are there, are there some problems that work better than others for this type of project? Yeah, I mean, high volume things are really easy to do. Like, you know, tonsillectomy outcomes is probably the easiest thing as a pediatric otolaryngologist to look at on a hospital level or even provider level, um, uh, you know, quality improvement scale and try to identify ways to make things better and look for opportunities. And have you had the opportunity to design a project that um, works across multiple disciplines? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like my current role. So, I mean, that's a little bit like higher level, I guess, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, just, to, yeah just to add to that, I, I just wanna, if you're a trainee and you're looking to get involved, I think the keys are one, you know, find something that's going to have an impact, right? So find something that really you, you will notice on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, uh, and doubt those, like Mike said, tend to be higher volume things. It may not necessarily be clinical outcomes that you're looking to change. It may be a process. It may be efficiency that you're looking to change. Uh, so, so think about the things that you do a lot every day. Is there any part of that that could be made better or that's frustrating <clears throat> to folks? Um, so the, those are a couple of the things. You don't necessarily have to look at clinical outcomes, although uh, a lot of things do end up uh, getting measured that way. Um, you can look at process things. You can look at efficiency. Um, and how care is delivered. And can you give yeah. us some tips to design a project that would be multidisciplinary? Um, and then um, I'll get to you, Jennifer, and then I'm going to ask all of you guys to give us some uh, specific examples for projects you've worked on. Sure. I think my biggest tips when I am coaching trainees through quality improvement is really being mindful of your scope, um, especially because, you know, like the bigger projects that I've done have taken multiple years. And a lot of the times the trainees are not with us that long. Um, and so be mindful if you have, for example, a year. So as I say, it's a fellow, they have a year with us. Um, be mindful of the scope and, and try to pick something that is actually achievable in that time. And usually that means scaling it down um, and focusing on one aspect of the bigger problem that you are aiming to solve. Yeah. Can you give us a specific example of a, a project that's worked well? Um, well, one of the things that my current, one of my current fellows is doing is that she is looking the, there's a lot of variation in practice on how we manage 
um, tracheomalacia. So we get calls for our patients who have tracheostomies, who are on the vent, who have tracheomalacia with difficulty ventilating. And it would depend on, you know, who the pulmonologist is, who the PICU attending is, and who the pediatric or laryngologist is as to how it's managed. Do we put in a longer trach? Do we do a PEEP study? And so what we are doing is uh, she collaborated with the pulmonologist and we're coming up with a standard protocol for how we approach these patients. Very cool. And then Josh, can you give us um, some tips for working in a uh, multidisciplinary uh, fashion as well as uh, some specific examples? Sure. So I think one of the most important things and this it applies to trainees, but also I think applies to folks uh, as you are a new attending uh, or starting a new job. If this is something you're interested in, start getting to know folks in other divisions and other specialties and other roles in the hospital. Really um, get out there and meet people um, because these are the folks that you're going to work with. These are the other stakeholders that that um, that are going to be key to a successful project. So getting out there early. Uh, expressing your interest and getting to know as many people as possible, asking folks who's interested in QI and various divisions can be very, very helpful. Um, because if you don't have um, good partners who are who buy into the project, uh, things will die on the vine. Um, I can think of a couple specific things. You know, one smaller thing that I think a trainee is is it would be a good scope for a trainee. And it arose, like Mike said, out of, you know, uh, an M&M conference where we realized, hmm, this is something that, that could um, potentially hurt someone down the line. And that was, you know, when we do laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy, we, we topically anesthetize the larynx uh, with uh, lidocaine. Uh, and there was a case where um, we used a certain amount of lidocaine and then there was a, another procedure by another service after us and they used more lidocaine. And we realized, wow, you know, we... We got in under the limit here, but that was just by luck. Um, and so we kind of redesigned the process around how we not only um, draw up the lidocaine that we use, we standardized the concentration, the delivery method, but also added in a bit in our surgical timeout to really discuss um, discuss what we were giving, how much we were giving, what the patient's weight was, and that sort of thing. And that was multidisciplinary. That worked, you know, not only with, with our division, but the other divisions in the Department of Surgery obviously anesthesiology and perioperative nursing. So uh, that was a good, you know, it's a big project, but pretty limited in time, right? Something someone could easily accomplish and did accomplish within about three months, right? If you get the right team together. Um, and then, you know, a larger project that I think would be more of like a fellow level or actually really an attending level, a uh, new attending, we, we basically redesigned our tracheostomy inpatient and outpatient care model. Um, we are a large division, uh, over 20 uh, people in our division. In order to kind of standardize our approach to trach care, we limited uh, who sees trachs in an outpatient world to just five of us. Um, and that, that caused like a radical, you know, rethinking of how we, how we handle tracheostomies uh, throughout the hospital. Uh, and that was a many years long process. So it can really, you know, it can, it can, the scope can be very small or very, very large. Interesting. Yeah, Mike, why don't you uh, uh, tell us the same? Yeah, um, you know, I'll kind of, you know, Josh and I both were talking about how high volume things can be, um, you know, low hanging fruit, for, especially for trainees. But I, I think sometimes the low volume but high acuity things can also be really important. And I'll, I'll give you an example of a trainee driven project that we had um, here in Wisconsin. And, and that was um, 
standardizing and improving the availability of, of the equipment on our difficult airway carts. Um, and this kind of stemmed from like an on-call experience for, for one of our residents where they, you know, went to go for a difficult airway before the staff could get there and there was equipment missing from the cart and, and it just so happened that it, that cart hadn't been stocked properly. And so, you know, they, they identified that opportunity and they partnered with our critical care team and our anesthesia team on making sure that all the cards had exactly the same things in exactly the same spot so that no matter who was on call, you knew what you needed and where it was. Um, you know, some other trainee driven projects that we've had here are, are like pre-made epistaxis control kits that the residents use on call. Um, they've, our residents have partnered with our audiology team to improve our protocol and the coordination for ear exams and, and repeat newborn hearing screens for the NICU babies. Yeah, on a larger scale, um, you know, as, as myself as the faculty, we, you know, we've partnered with NICU and anesthesia um, colleagues as well to improve perioperative coordination of like trachs with, um, you know, other procedures such as G-tubes and hernia surgery. Um, we've worked with anesthesia and critical care to improve critical um, airway alerts in our electronic health record. Um, so that triggers come up whenever anyone enters a chart of someone who's been designated as a critical airway so that they know what is the anatomy of this child and what do I need to do to secure the airway if needed. Um, and so those are some of the, you know, just kind of off the top of my head, some of the multidisciplinary kind of efforts that we've kind of had here that, you know, otolaryngology can do to improve the care at their hospital. Excellent. Josh. Yeah, I, I just wanted to, to add in one thing, and that's if you are want if you do want to start a project, be thoughtful about the design, be thoughtful about the variables and outcomes that you're going to measure, and make sure that you have data on what exists now. <clears throat> yeah. So that you know if you've made a difference. A lot of times, I, I in in people's excitement to do things, you just start, uh, and then you realize later, well, we don't, we actually didn't have data about what it was like before we started this. Uh, change. So make sure you're really thoughtful and deliberate about that design. Find someone in your division that, that uh, has knowledge about that uh, so that you, you, you will know if you're successful or not. It's sort of tagging on to that. Um, you know, one of the things that I was initially tasked with when I started as an attending is that they were looked at unanticipated ICU admissions um, in the division and how they were originally defining it was the you know patient who gets admitted somewhere else who decompensates and goes to the ICU. Um, but when we were pulling the data, one of the things I realized is they kept pulling out all of these data points of patients who were misscheduled. And so patients who should have been scheduled for the ICU, but were not scheduled for the ICU. And they're like, oh, that was just a scheduling error. So it doesn't count. And I'm like, yeah, but this is actually happening almost twice as frequently as the other thing. And so that actually ended up being the real problem. And it, and it, it ended up, and I'm, it's too much to go into right now, but it ended up being that the combination of the patients who decompensate and these scheduling errors were actually working together to create a larger problem in the institution that we ultimately ended up solving. Interesting. This is great. Anything anybody else wants to add? Yeah, I mean, I'll, you know, you asked earlier, Javen, about roadblocks and, you know, and some, how do you accomplish things? And, and there, you know, I'll bring this up because Josh and Jen just kind of were. Um, hitting on this as well. I, I think one of the biggest roadblocks that, that people might encounter is just institutional buy-in and support, you know, both from a financial and from support personnel perspective um, and getting protected time dedicated to these efforts. Um, you know, be, because a lot of these things we were talking about, they, they take time and they take meetings and they take more time and more meetings. Um, 
but if you build the necessary relationships with your leadership and, and you can demonstrate value to these things, um, and to, and that goes back to what Josh was saying about getting the data ahead of time is, is that can actually help you build your case um, for why it's important to do these things. Um, you know, the, the buy-in usually becomes a lot easier and getting the support you need becomes a lot easier. Yeah, very interesting. Awesome, well, this has been great, guys. Um, I want to thank you again for your time and uh, for being champions for the cause. Quality improvement is so important. And um, uh, thanks again and have a great evening. Thanks. Thanks, Javen. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.